Go ahead and get started. Thanks for coming, everybody, to our Thursday night dual ministry. Uh, on Tuesday, we didn't quite finish up lesson three, so we're going to start there. Uh, we're going to be beginning with uh, union with Christ. There's a John Murray quote just immediately after uh, that headline, but let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we again thank you for. Uh, your word, your word that is uh, a revelation of who you are. Uh, it is an unveiling, O oh God, of the greatness of uh, not only your plan for us, but God, your nature, your character, your majesty, your worthiness of our adoration and worship. And so I pray uh, you'd help us, Lord, even as we look systematically at some of these theological things to not fix our eyes on ourselves, but on you. And so uh, we thank you, Lord, for all of the things that we're going to talk about that uh, pertain to us, that touch upon us, uh, of our salvation and our sanctification. But, Lord, uh, we pray that our eyes would be fixed in uh, reverence and worship on you. And so be glorified in this time that we spend together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, picking it up, lesson three, midway through, at union with Christ. So we've been arguing that justifying faith is the instrument by which we are united to Christ. Uh, so let's explore that a little bit more. John Murray quote here, union with Christ is the central truth, the whole doctrine of salvation. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God. All that has been secured and procured in the once for all accomplishment of redemption. All of which they became the actual partakers in the application of redemption and all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. It is out of the measureless fullness of grace and truth, of wisdom and power, of goodness and love, righteousness and faithfulness, which resides in him that God's people draw for all their needs in this life and for the hope of the life to come. There is no truth, therefore, more suited to impart confidence and strength comfort and joy in the Lord than this one union with Christ. Uh, that's what everything is pointing to. Uh, not a salvation that pertains uh, to us as the center, but Christ is the center and we are united to him. So let's start by uh, looking at Ephesians 1. If you want to turn to that in your Bibles, Ephesians 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 1 3 through 14. Somebody want to read that for us? And while we're looking at it, uh, consider as we read it, what are some of the blessings to which Paul is referring? So he's going to talk about God blessing his people. What are the blessings that he talks about? Uh, and why is Paul banging this drum? Why, why is this the theme that he's pushing us towards? Somebody want to read that? Ephesians 1, verse 3, down to 14. 
Blessed be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Good. Uh, so what are some of the blessings that Paul points us to in this passage? You can just shout one out. You don't have to get them all. Being chosen in him. Being chosen in Christ. Yep. Uh, another word for being chosen in Christ would be predestined or election. Yep. In him we have redemption. Redemption. Yep. Forgiveness of sins. Adoption. The wisdom that comes from God. Uh, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, marked out for all eternity as belonging to God. And in all of those things, they are in Christ. They are in our union with Christ. And therefore, it is not we who are exalted, but Christ who is lifted up. Lest we think that union with Christ is a doctrine that only was taught by the Apostle Paul, uh, let's listen to Jesus' words as recorded in John's Gospel, John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. Already you are clean because of the word that I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So is union with Christ a reality restricted to our first moment of belief and salvation? Well, the answer is clearly no. Uh, this is an abiding. This is a continuing uh, union with Christ. Not, not just a one time I prayed a prayer and was united with Jesus. Uh, when Jesus unites us to him, it is an eternal uniting. So does our union with Christ relate to the doctrine of justification? Uh, Romans 4, 23 through 25 
But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who were raised from the dead, uh, who raised from the dead our Lord, good grief, we're off to a great start, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, so we're united with Christ and then we are adopted as sons. Uh, so let's let's consider that thought for just a little bit. Uh, somebody want to read for us Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? And then somebody else, John chapter 8. Anybody want the Ephesians 2 one? Okay, Josiah. Uh, John 8, 42 to 44. Somebody want that one? Okay, and then 1 John 3, verses 8 through 10. Who'd like that one? Okay. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Go ahead. Nice and long. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Good. John eight forty two and 44. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and then I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All right, that's good. So before we were adopted by God, whose sons were we? Satan's, right? That, that's our identity. That's our belonging. That's uh, our fallen human nature. We're actually uh, reflecting him more than we are reflecting God. Uh, and lastly, 1 John chapter 3, 8 through 10, again, nice and loud. Thank you. So we have been transferred from uh, being in the line of Satan as father to now God as father, adopted into that family. Galatians 3, 25 and 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Before the guardian was what? What does scripture talk about? The law. The law. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was less of a, uh, a guardian that leads us in the right direction and more of a stop sign that says uh, cliff ahead, which we just played Thelma and Louise all the time, just like straight through. Is that too old of a reference for everybody? Spoiler alert. Dang it. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, which is translated Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So why, why does it say son and not son or daughter? This isn't necessarily in the notes, but the, it, it's good to think about. Yeah, yeah. The, the sons had this full right of inheritance. We're not saying that's the way it should be. Uh, Aiden's sitting in the room. He's our youngest. He has two older sisters ahead of him. Uh, and uh, we don't necessarily do things like that now, but uh, there was an understanding in the Eastern world, in fact, still exists, that the right of inheritance will pass to the son, and particularly the oldest son. And in Christ, we have been adopted into that line of inheritance. All right, Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. All right, there's some... Uh, Lengthy quotations at the end. I'll let you read those for yourself along with the statement of faith. Let's go ahead and move on to lesson four, God's work in sanctification. Good luck following that hot act. All right. We'll do our best. Uh, we are now getting into some of the lessons and really sort of from here on out for the rest of this week, uh, we'll be getting into some weeds in our lessons where we will be running into some things that um, because of how many years ago it was when these notes were put together that as we go through them uh, Matt or I and teaching may go eh, I don't really think that uh, but we'll keep our wits about us and I know we'll do just fine uh, so uh, lesson number four sanctification um, we've all had, had enough encounters with nominal Christian faith, that, that faith that's an inch deep, that, that uh, doesn't show any signs of being transformed by the gospel to know what a problem that is uh, in the church. Piper says, we live in a superficially Christianized society where thousands of lost people think they do believe in Jesus. Most of my witnessing to unbelievers and nominal Christians, the command, believe in Jesus and you shall be saved, is virtually meaningless. Drunks on the street say they do. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they do. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they do. Every stripe of world-loving church attendees say they do. And so we, we need to, uh, to have a recovery of, of really the fullness of what Matt was just talking about. What it means to be united to Christ. What union with Christ um, means and accomplishes and necessarily entails in our lives and so uh, more than just understanding justification by faith alone we need to understand the doctrine of sanctification that's what we're talking about here uh, so a couple of these terms baptism by the holy spirit uh, it's really it's the same as the phrase baptism in or with uh, the holy spirit just depending on how the word is translated but one of the things that gets done with this and we need to be careful as we talk about these things, and hopefully we'll navigate these waters um, fairly safely. Is we, you can have a pendulum swing against um, perhaps you were part of a system or an understanding that you've come to realize was an error, 
and you can swing all the way around and you start throwing out biblical words and you don't want to use them. You, they may, and so um, to somebody who, who, who came through the Pentecostal charismatic experience on sort of the wild end of the spectrum, you hear baptism of the Holy Spirit and you go, this is, I don't know, I want to talk that way. And then you have to remind yourself, well, that's a Bible phrase. So I should love that. I shouldn't have that response in my heart. So you want to war against that. One of the things, though, we, we need to do then is define what we mean, because there is a lot of bad teaching out there. Um, so baptism by the Holy Spirit, we say that it can lead us to think um, uh, that, that at the center of this is a, is a baptism by the Holy Spirit, when what the scripture is really getting at is a baptism with the Holy Spirit, a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we, we see both of these um, phrases there in your notes, baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, it's the coming into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and th this includes our regeneration. Uh, it includes our our cleansing from sin it it includes the the breaking of sin's power the breaking breaking free of our solidarity with adam and being united to christ it it includes empowering for ministry all of that uh, filled with the holy spirit another one of those biblical phrases uh and and this is something where as we go the notes uh are going to say some things in probably a way that that we wouldn't want to say it uh at this as we stand in 2024 um, but we shouldn't shy away from words like filling of the Holy Spirit or the notion of subsequent to salvation fillings of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we had 25% Holy Spirit and we need to get the other 75% at a later date, which is sort of the charismatic thinking. Um, but this idea of, of fresh strengthening, of renewed hope, of renewed encouragement, uh, of inspiration, greater power for ministry, um, greater operation in spiritual gifts, or perhaps in moments, operation in spiritual gifts that we didn't operate in before. We shouldn't shy away from those things. Those, that, those are good and biblical, and, uh, we, and greater victory over sin in our, in our lives. Um, perfectionism, that, that's the view of sinless perfectionism, that, that somehow in this life we will be freed totally from conscious sin. Um, sanctification, the ongoing work of God, the process by which God is making us more and more conformed to the image of Christ, freed from sin, transformed into the likeness of Christ. Sinless perfectionism, similar to that word perfectionism, is, or sin, sinless perfection so again, it's this idea of being totally freed from sin. And so, so the issue as we talk about sanctification is there are those theological streams that say we'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there in this life. Um, and we would say, not according to the Bible. Um, so, all right, differences between justification and sanctification. It's important for us to be clear. Um, and, and, and when we talk about these things, and I... I differences between justification and sanctification are are pretty big differences so i think we are pretty clear on the line between those but i would just say especially for those of you that that have a desire to preach and to teach that that precision and clarity is uh a big deal 
Um, and I even, I even noticed on Tuesday, you know, a couple references to parts of the Trinity when various people would be talking. Don't let yourself say the word part uh, when you're talking about the Trinity. There are persons of the Trinity. Um, but that, that's what I mean, just b being precise. And so these theological terms, it's the kind of thing. I can remember one, one Sunday here, and this was years and years ago. Um, I preached a sermon and used the word propitiation a lot. And somebody came up to me afterwards and they're like, I don't know why you got to throw those words around like that. Can't you just say what you mean? I'm like, well, that word's in the Bible. That's not just even a theological term. It's a Bible word. So, uh, but there, there, there is a temptation um, to sort of give in to like, we don't need to, to use these theological terms, but it's actually very, very important that we understand um, these things. Uh, and so sanctification uh, is, is separate from justification. Justification happens at one fixed moment, one moment in time. Sanctification is an ongoing process. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven, uh, and listen, listen now to these passages. How these words are being used: sanctification, justification. First Corinthians six, verses nine through eleven. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Nor uh, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, how are those words being used there? Such were some of you. These will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. How, how's... How's sanctified being used there? In the same sense as yeah. justified, like, like, like an action, like past inter tense. It's interchangeable words almost. Okay, right. So, so there's this parallel going on here, right? Washed, sanctified, justified. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How, how is sanctification being used here? Okay, comes right, comes by the Spirit. It's, it's parallel here in this passage is belief in the truth. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so we, we see these 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 passages and this this word is being used um, sort of in conjunction with justification but that doesn't mean uh, that that's the only way sanctify is used or even the main way and so look at a couple other texts where we get the doctrine of sanctification and see how it's being used here Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified What's the parallel word there? Being perfected. First Thessalonians 4, verses 2 through 7. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but holiness. Okay, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what is our sanctification there? It's holy living, right? It's a whole list of, of, of things. Holy living. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 15 through 19. I do not, as, as Jesus prays for his disciples, do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified. So again, sanctified, being kept, being preserved. Um, parallels to consecrate. As I have consecrated myself, I pray that they be sanctified. So it's this ongoing process in, in this group of texts. In the life of the believers, where we are being matured, where we are being uh, grown in holiness into the likeness of Christ. In texts like Philippians 3, which we're going to read in a second. Actually, somebody want to look up Philippians 3, and you're going to read verses 12 through 14. It's not going to use that word, sanctify or sanctification, but it's going to give us, again, uh, an understanding of what's going on in the doctrine of sanctification. If somebody's got it, go ahead and just read it out. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay. So we've got the doctrine of justification. We've got the doctrine of sanctification. Is this chart, is this chart in your, your notes? Justification and sanctification? Okay, you see it there. Justification, external to us, right? It's done to us. Sanctification, internal to us. Justification is a legal declaration. It is, we are declared righteous. Sanctification, we are made righteous. Justification removes the guilt of sin. Sanctification removes the pollution of sin. Justification, again, is a, is a legal standing before God. Sanctification is a, a, a moral condition. Justification restores God's favor. Sanctification restores God's image. Justification complete and once for all. Sanctification progressive and incomplete until we see Christ face to face, until we're glorified. That's why we sing the, 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 great, the great line of, of uh, come thou fount of every blessing. Oh, that day when freed from sinning. This is what we long for. Um, justification gives us title to heaven. Sanctification gives us fitness for heaven. Justification, the criminal is pardoned. And sanctification, the patient is healed. So why is it important for us, vital for us, to understand the difference between justification and sanctification? Okay, not our actions alone. No. Yeah. Alone, but but uh, right, okay. Yeah, one of them we're a passive recipient of, 
the other we are active in. Yes, if you true. If you see them as the same thing, and you sort of decide that that's what the case is, then there's nothing left to do throughout mm -hmm. the rest of your life. Once you've gone through them with salvation. Right. So might might lead to not bearing fruit in keeping with salvation if we misunderstand. We 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 run the risk, don't we, of uh, of believing a false gospel if we don't see the difference between justification and sanctification. Of we, we run the risk of, of works righteousness, of, of just what every other religion's got. Here's my list of do's and my list of don'ts, and how well I manage that uh, is what will determine my standing with God. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit right now with a couple passages. Would somebody look up Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5? And then somebody else, Titus 3, verses 4 through 8. Titus 3, verses 4 through 8. And, and listening here, um, um, if these lines were blurred, if these lines were blurred between justification and sanctification, um, and, and listening particularly for the order here, how does this work? Justification leads to sanctification, or sanctification leads to justification. All right, Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, All right, in uh, Titus 3, verses 4 through 8. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what's the problem if we get the order wrong? If, if, if justification were built on sanctification instead of the other way around? Well, it'd be work -based salvation. Yeah, it'd be work-based salvation. It'd be work-based salvation, and you might as well climb to the moon on a on a rope made of sand, right? It's, it's impossible. Um, there's, there's no way we could do it. We would be totally without hope. Um, so it's essential that we, that we get this right. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and, and perfect. And Piper says this, For the next five chapters, Paul will call us to live a certain way as Christians. With this word, therefore, he's saying the foundation we build our lives on is a foundation laid in Romans 1 through 11. Paul's turning now from doctrine 
to practice. And I, and I think you know this of, of the book of Romans, that the first 11 chapters is the greatest, highest mountaintop, ivory tower doctrine and theology that man has ever expressed. And then from chapter 12, verse 1 on, Paul's going to, you know, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? Uh, and so that's, that's what Piper's getting at. Everything he's going to say about how we live is based on what's been revealed in chapters 1 through 11. He's now turning from doctrine to practice, from theology to ethics, from what's true about God in Christ and salvation to what we must do, what we therefore should do because of Romans 1 through 11. Because of all the truth about God and sin and Christ and the cross and the spirit and faith and justification, because of all we've seen in Romans 1 through 11, therefore we are to build our practical lives on this. Paul moves from foundation to application with the word therefore. Christian acting and feeling and speaking are not rootless. They have foundation. They're built on something. Paul spent 11 chapters laying the foundation for the building of Romans 12 through 16. If we miss that connection, we miss everything. All, all the Bible's do's are therefore do's. The, 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 God's commands are always built on something. They're never arbitrary. They're built on the truth of who God is and how he has created the world and what his eternal purposes are in it. Now, the process of sanctification. Again, we see this is a progressive process of God in the life of the Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 listening here for, for this progressive nature of sanctification now the lord is spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is spirit so how, how, how is this transformation happening in our lives We're being transformed how? From one degree of glory to another. Bit by bit, day by day, transformed from glory to glory to glory. The process of sanctification is something to be pursued. Uh, what that means is, and, and we've observed and even seen in our own lives, is that not every Christian is pursuing sanctification at exactly the same rate. Uh, that we in our own lives have not been just a steady, always at the same pace, pursuing sanctification. Sometimes we're more or less vigorous in our pursuit of God. Listen, though, to the commands here in Hebrews chapter 12. Every time you hear a command, just, just stop me. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted verses 12 through 14 it says therefore lift your drooping hands strengthen your weak knees make straight paths for your feet 
so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What, what do these commands that we see here imply about the process of sanctification? It's work. You got to plan for it. You got to know where you're headed. You got to know what you are are going for. You need to be strenuous in it. That's why the Bible uses these athletic descriptions for the Christian life. We were to strive in the Christian life. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-four through twenty-seven. Do you not know that the race all runners? Uh, do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. John Owen in, in, in The Mortification of Sin says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So we know, though, that this process is never complete in this life. We, we are always going to need to grow in holiness. We are always going to need to mortify, to put sin to death, um, as long as we live. A few texts here to that end. First uh, John 1, verses 6 through 10. I'm going to just give you a list of them here to write down. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ. James chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So it's this ongoing practice striving straining working to live a life of holiness to put sin to death what was the, ephesians? the ephesians reference was chapter 4 verses 31 and 32 so is this process ever finished hebrews chapter 12 verses 22 and 23 you've come to mount zion to the city of the living god to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Revelation 21, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter, speaking of the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are, who's, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. So, will our sanctification be completed? 
It will. And when? When we see him face to face. All right. God's work and our work in sanctification. It's a process. Again, something we're to pursue, to strive after. How does this work? God's grace, our effort. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And listening here for this, this, this relationship between the grace of God and our work. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, what does that mean? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for. What does the for tell us is about to happen? He's about to tell us why, right? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what do we see there? What's the grounds for verse 12? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's the grounds for it? God's working in you. Remember what we said, all of, the, all, of, all of God's dues are therefore dues. And the word for is, is therefore, it just works in the opposite direction. So, so God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, and so we see this, um, we, we, we see this interdependency of our ability to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, this command on on actually God's initiative, God's empowering, and God's work. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Same idea. Paul exhorts the Roman believers in chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So, so he hearing these things, how, how, how do we express that, that divine and human dynamic of sanctification? Okay, so, so we're called to work. We're called to put to death the deeds of the body. And yet we recognize in all of it, it is only the work of God that would enable us to do that. We'd have no desire. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We wouldn't will his good pleasure unless he was at work in us to will his good pleasure. And we wouldn't work for his good pleasure unless he was at work in us to work for his good pleasure. Two, two great quotes here. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, we are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. But God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all. That's what he produces via our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We are the, on we are the proper actors. We are, in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. Really helpful way of expressing it. D.A. Carson, I know you've heard this quote before. Um, you have to use this quote in a sermon at least twice a year. Um, or else you're not 
you're not doing your job. Uh, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Consider then also Peter's words about service certainly applies to sanctification as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God provides in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So why does God supply everything that we need for sanctification? Drawing from Peter's words there about why he supplies everything we need for serving him in the church. So that he'd be glorified. So he'd be glorified, right? All right, without sanctification, and again, we've got to get the order right. We've got to get the order right. Justification leads to sanctification. Our good works are the product of saving faith, not the cause of salvation. But there is no salvation without this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And how do you do it? Holiness. Yeah. The life of, of holiness. And implied in that is... What if you don't live a life of holiness? You're proving something about yourself. It, 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 the, the, the tree of saving faith grows a certain kind of fruit. And if you don't grow that fruit, you've got re- good reason to doubt that you are that kind of tree. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We saw another vice list like this from Paul earlier when we read from 1 Corinthians 6. Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, how would you respond to to a statement like this? Our salvation depends on our sanctification. Okay, so we'd want to we'd want to know 
what do you mean? <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is a good question to ask anybody about anything. They put, what, do you, what do you mean? Because uh, words don't mean anything anymore, apparently. Uh, it, in one sense, yes. Right? This is, this is similar between what we see from Paul and what we see from James that we talked about Tuesday night. We are saved by faith alone and not by works, or we are not saved by faith alone, but by works. <laughs> and we go, well, that doesn't work. We have to know what both guys mean, right? So there's a way to say this statement. Your, our salvation depends on our sanctification. And go, well, that's absolutely right. If, if you don't have sanctification, you've proven something about yourself. But you guys were immediately getting at, at the heart of the issue, which is what we don't mean by that is that our sanctification saves us. That our, that, our, uh, that our salvation is built on the foundation of our sanctification. Our, our sanctification is the fruit of our salvation, but it's a necessary fruit. Uh, and we, we must be clear about that. There, there is no, there's a, a lot of controversy in reform circles over lordship salvation. I think it's so dumb. There's no other kind of salvation except that in which Christ is Lord and we bow the knee. There's no other kind. There's no such thing as, as a salvation that, that does not bear the fruit of, of righteousness in our lives. Uh, and so it's essential for us to understand that. Now, filling with the Holy Spirit, uh, we'll probably get through this quicker. We'll see. Um, okay, so regeneration sanctification but the spirit is also um, empowering us for effective witness and for service uh, the the inaugural experience of this empowering work is called baptism in the holy spirit uh, and so one of the one of the one of the things that that we would have said in years past is there, there is the filling of the Holy Spirit that happens at salvation, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is another thing. It's another thing that's gonna, that would come along later. And even the understanding at a, at a certain point, uh, some Christians have it, some Christians don't. All Christians should, some do and some don't. Um, I think I, I'm safe on safe ground saying that, like, it's not just me who doesn't believe that anymore. Yeah, yeah okay. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Good, 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 good. Okay. <laughs> just trying to, like, I don't want to say something and have you be like, no, that's not. We do very much. Please go home. Um, <laughs> so so we, we don't believe that. And, and, and I've gone to lengths in the notes to, to demonstrate it. Uh, and it's not necessary at all uh, to do that. Uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to give you a couple passages here. Um, I'm not going to take the time to try to convince you of something. I don't believe these passages are teaching, however. Um, Acts chapter eight, verses 12 through 17. Uh, Peter, or, uh, Philip is preaching the good news. They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed after being baptized. He continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard in Samaria, had received the word of God, they sent uh, to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
All right, so uh, then Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, where Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you could use these passages. Some have, who will remain nameless, but it's me. Um, use these to go, okay, so well, there you go. Why are the, these are believers, and they still needed this subsequent filling. What is one major distinction between the account in Acts chapter 8 and us as we sit in this room in 2024? Yeah, I mean, it's an obvious difference. Um, that one was in Acts chapter 8. This is much later. Much has happened here, right? And so we see this progressive nature of revelation in God's unfolding of, of who he is. Um, and now, what we don't mean is progressive revelation that's come after the end of Scripture. But what we mean is, in the, in the giving of Scripture, we see progressive revelation. And we see this in, in the Gospels and then the book of Acts. And we see it if we trace it all the way from the Old Testament. That is an unfolding new understanding of what's going on. Uh, and so you do run into these people who are believers, but they've never heard the whole message yet. Uh, and we saw it Tuesday night with Cornelius. Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, a worshiper of God, but needed to hear the whole message uh, from Peter uh, for this. And so, so God is doing something unique here in the establishment of the church, in the, in the verifying. And, and we, we see that in some other passages that get used to like as proof texts for certain sign gifts and things like that. God is at work in a unique way, verifying some, some, some very new things. Not, not a change in God's eternal purposes, but an unfolding of those purposes. Now all of a sudden, Gentiles are coming to faith. Well, what's one of the ways, what's one of the ways that they knew Gentiles were genuinely coming into faith? They, they believed while the preaching was happening, and what would happen? They'd speak in tongues, miraculous things would be going on, and they'd go, okay. Okay, we know then that the Spirit of God's been given to the Gentiles and not just the Jews. There's a unique thing that's going on uh, in these situations. And so. Uh, it's noteworthy in Acts 8, it's Samaria. Mm -hmm. Right. There, there's a lengthy history. Uh, so Cornelius in Acts 10 is going to be a full on Gentile. Uh, Samaritans were this weird half breed. Uh, the Jews looked down on Gentiles. They despised the Samaritans. And so we, you actually see both ends of the spectrum where in one, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out subsequent to belief as a proof that their belief was genuine. And with the Gentiles, it comes before there's any confession of belief. Mm -hmm. and neither one of those can become a proof text because they kind of cancel each other out. But it's exactly what Jason was saying. This was God proving in a tangible, visible way no, these guys are really in. In a way that, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure I believe they wouldn't have bought. Because the Samaritans did say, yeah, we yeah, they've And right. Jesus said, you don't know who you worship. <laughs> right? And, and uh, you think of how the Jews felt about, well, the Samaritans in particular, right? They're the worst. 
we hate them the most. That's why the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the whole point is, you know, the, the young lawyer tests Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is like, the guy you hate the worst gets this in a way you don't get it. Um, and, and so you think of how the Jews, though, would daily thank God in the synagogue that they weren't born a Gentile. Uh, and, and then the spirit of God is falling on them as they believe in ways that cannot be denied. Uh, and so it is this very nature of the undeniable mark of God uh, marking out his apostles, as we see in the Old Testament, marking out his prophets, as we see in the ministry of Jesus, marking out Christ. Um, it's that exact thing we see. And so we're not relying on, because some of the arguments are like, I mean, it doesn't seem like there was even a, an apostle in this group over here. Okay, fine. But it, it's, it's that exact same thing. It's God marking out what he's doing in undeniable ways. And so um, we don't have a problem with that. Now, here's where we don't want to swing all the way over, though. Paul says in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in your heart. Give me thanks always for everything to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence. We should desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should desire fresh infillings. We, we should desire um, to feel freshly encouraged and strengthened and, and, and refreshed. Um, and he tells us what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing to one another. Encouraging one another. Upbuilding one another. Making melody then to the Lord. Singing to one another. Singing to the Lord. Giving thanks in everything. In the name of Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's all of these things that the Spirit is doing as he fills us. He's producing reverence for Christ. He's, he's producing worship. He's producing joy. He's producing peace. He's producing humility, all of these things. And we should desire that. We should desire It's right for us. It's right for us. Uh, it's, it's weird when churches sing a lot about like the fire falling down because that usually involves people being consumed and burned alive and judged by God. But it's right for Christians to cry out for fresh infillings of the Holy Spirit. It's right for us to do that. It's, it's good for us to do that. And we don't want to swing so far that we're like, we leave that to the weird people. Wait, no, wait. we don't let them have it. We better to say so. Having a fresh infilling Holy Spirit on me, then we should be commanded. Like I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Not to be ten feet shy away from. Sounds so nervous when people say that. Right. But rather being like the refresh, like be refreshed to say like he is at salvation. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. So he's already indwelling in us. So having a fresh filling isn't like you're slightly repented yourself a little bit. <laughs> right. First, he's got to top you off again. That's, yeah. Well, that's getting at what Matt was saying Tuesday night, looking at the statement from the statement of faith here. The statement in itself isn't problematic. However, depending on your context, you hear you hear the way something's expressed and you go, I think a lot of the people are going to get this yeah. wrong. But yeah. Does that make sense? So like in, in my context, and I suspect Matt here, 
you're not going to hear us saying a lot of like language like a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. You're going to hear something expressed quite differently than that. And the reason is because the people are used to hearing a certain kind of language and it meaning a certain kind of thing. And so you don't, you kind of shy away, you know. It's like, it's, it's, you know, I didn't walk out in the sunshine today and find a crowd and go, I feel so gay today out here. Well, why? Because that wouldn't be the most helpful way to express that I felt happy in the sun uh, in, in, in our world. So there's nothing wrong with that expression except that everybody would get it wrong. Um, so then do you, is it, is it case by case basis to determine whether it's worth it just from proper understanding of the context behind the phrase? Yeah, I think you're always considering who you're talking to and how to communicate to them in language that they can understand that conveys the truth of the the text. So I imagine unless you're willing to spend 10 to 15 minutes in a sermon to explain the one time you want to use that phrase depending on who you're preaching to. So yeah, you don't have time you don't have 10 to 15 so minutes. So since this is school of ministry and it's uh, preparatory for actually serving and ministering to people uh, rather than giving a theological dissertation on uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, what's more helpful, I think, is pinpointing what is what is the presupposition that they're bringing to the text. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you do that, so take the one that uh, Tim just referenced there, uh, right in the middle of Ephesians 5, verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but uh, be filled with the Spirit. And so that this is, this is a subsequent thing, this is ongoing thing and it, if we're going to put our finger on it it's most of the people uh, who are sort of thinking and pushing in the wrong direction here when they hear that it's an experiential thing so this is this is an experience that i had that's how it's a mm -hmm. fresh filling and man what an awesome service that was that that's not yeah. the thrust of the text the thrust of the text is be being filled it, it's a right. continual always thing, sort of like be holy as I am holy. We don't go like, you better have some holiness meetings. Right? I better yeah. have a holy experience. No, this is an ongoing, daily, um, habitual thing of the Christian life where we are to be drawing strength and filling from the Spirit of God and not from that which is around us. So I, I think if we, can, if we can take 30 seconds and go, here's what you're bringing to the text. Mm -hmm. Here's what's actually here. We can talk about some of these sort of weedy theological things in a way that doesn't bog down yeah. the sermon. And you have to. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't want to be misunderstood. We should not ever shy away from biblical language. I would never shy away from saying be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ever. I probably wouldn't use the language a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's not biblical language. That's just a turn of phrase. I would never shy away from biblical language. We must never. We, the minute we start doing that, we have set ourselves in authority over the way God has revealed himself. Uh, it is not the way. So I wouldn't shy away from baptism of the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't shy away from uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, any of that. But what I would want to do is exactly what Matt said, and that is 
I'm aware as we say these words that people are carrying luggage with them. And, and I want to be able to say, you don't know it, but you're carrying luggage with you. Uh, let me tell you what that luggage is and what it, let me tell you what this means. That's important. That can be done in a short amount of time. So I would do that, but I wouldn't use a word that I had to explain, you know, at length um, that wasn't a Bible word. Does that make sense? Yeah. We don't, we do not want to get into a thing where we're looking at the words, the words that God has breathed out and we're like, well, I wouldn't say it like that. No, we would. We will. All of it. Um, so that was predestination and election when we were kids. Like growing up yeah. in Maple Grove, those were the dirty words. And I was shocked later to find they were in the Bible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> A lot later. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let me just wrap this lesson up w with this, um, with this idea. And that is, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, differences on these issues among Christians. Um, there are certain things that are are central, and it's a, what's true is important, yeah. right? Is the gift of tongues for today? Like, do people have the gift of tongues, or do people have the gift of healing? Some Christians say no. Some Christians say yes. One of those two is right, and the other one's wrong. The one that's wrong is making a claim about God that's not correct. So that matters, right? If you say if you say you got a prophetic word and you say this is a prophetic word from God and then you say something, it really, really matters if you're right. Or did you just say that God told you something and he didn't? Right? So you can see it matters a ton. But the, the essential thing is, is this. Within a local church, you can have in great unity together people who are not on the same page about that. And that's true here at Eden, and that's true at, at my church as well. There, there are people in the highest levels of leadership that are not exactly on the same page about these things. So, so uh, what, what, what is important? This recognition for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, the ongoing work of, of uh, sanctification, the ongoing work of empowerment for ministry, the ongoing work of, of refreshing, and, and the need for us to, to seek to be continually filled by the Spirit, to, to be conscious of that, uh, to not let ourselves get into a thing where, um, and I know that, that, that there's a lot of conscious thought about this, here as well, but to never let ourselves um, get get past that thing that I said on Tuesday about Spurgeon. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I need to. I had I had a somebody was leaving our church in in the last couple months. Um, I mean, a lot of people have left our church in the last last couple years, but uh, somebody who actually spoke to me, which never happens, so that was awesome. But they asked me and they said, one of the things that troubles me is you never come in on a Sunday morning and say, God told you to throw your sermon notes away and preach a whole different sermon. And I said, well, that's a, I understand you were, you know, in a Pentecostal circle at a certain point, And that's just sort of a thing they do. They, well, if, God, if you were certain that God wanted you to throw your notes away 
because the spirit was just directing you to say something else, would you do it? And I said, oh, I would if I was certain. Oh, really? I said, yeah, but that wouldn't be noble. It would mean I'd been sinning Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all the way up to Saturday night until Sunday morning. And then I finally surrendered my heart to listen to the Lord. Oh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. Like, we shouldn't applaud a preacher if they do that. Uh, we should question them. But you think, you think the moving of the Holy Spirit is supposed to look a certain way. You've got a certain expectation. It's one of those, like, you're carrying luggage and you don't know it. And I just began to explain to this person, when, when I step into the pulpit, by the time I get up there to preach, I have to preach this message. I have to, like... If an armed gunman comes in, I've still got to preach it. It's got to come out. It's got to be said. And you can teach anytime you want, but a sermon's got to be preached right now. You ever felt that when you're, that's the difference between preaching and teaching. You can teach whenever you want, but you got to preach it right now. It's the word's got to come out. Is that I feel when I get up to preach, this word has to be preached right now. When, when, when we sing together as the church, the Holy Spirit is at work. When we come to the Lord's table, this is a means of God's grace. We're being strengthened. We're being encouraged. We're, when, 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 when the gospel, when, the, when, when God's word is being proclaimed and preached, th th this is, is literally, I mean, if I had to, to choose, if somebody was, was about to die and they could spend an hour alone with their Bible or an hour with a solid preacher i'd pick the preacher every time like god is speaking it's it's incredible so so everything we do we never want to lose that earnest desire for the holy spirit to move and that reminding ourselves because in ministry you know you're coming week in and week out there's a lot of work that goes into it if you're preaching you might feel sick. You might have had the worst week. You, you might have labored. You might be stepping into the pulpit with notes that you're like, this is a clunker <laughs> of a sermon. And we have to say, uh, in fact, I'm about to proclaim the living word of God empowered by the third person of the triune Godhead who dwells within me and within the majority of these people here who are all who are believers and God is going to work in a supernatural way in this room that's beyond any one of our comprehension. And it's eternal and it's life changing. And we have to remind ourselves of that. That's not revving ourselves up. You still might be exhausted and feel awful the whole time, <laughs> that blurry vision. The whole time. But, but that's, that's what we must do. Um, certainly as, as if we're going to preach or teach, but, but also just as God's people. It's that desire for God um, by his spirit, through his word, to do all of his work uh, in us and that belief that he's going to do it. And so as we are desiring these things um, and, and earnestly seeking the spirit's empowering to live holy lives and to, to be empowered for service and ministry and, and right worship, um, we don't have to freak out quite so much then about like, this guy, this guy thinks people might still have the gift of healing. Or this guy doesn't. Like, if we're all on that page together, we got great unity in the church. A great fellowship. And a church full of people like that, 
a, a preacher like that um, changes changes the whole world. That's that's God's program. Um, so that that's the essential. Even as you know, you may find yourself looking at notes you wrote 15 years ago and going, mm, "I don't like this guy at all." Um, uh, but that that's the the centerpiece, and we must strive for that. That's a big part of that striving and not just coasting into it like D.A. Carson said in that great quote that we read earlier, is that. That's what we're striving for. Life in the Spirit. Okay. I think we had it. We covered it. Good. Did you slap a fly? I think so, but I also I think so. got some wet stuff. Can I just say I'm super excited that there's flies in this room? Because well, it's 55 degrees outside, <laughs> yes, and this true. is this is a foretaste yeah. of spring. Yeah, told me today said, there are spiders in the garage. <laughs> spring is upon us. <laughs> so excited. He's he's uh, accurate. Punxsutawney Phil is accurate. Uh, it's just over thirty percent of the time. So we got a yeah. lot, a lot <laughs> going for he's us. A he's a groundhog. He's a groundhog. Prognosticator of prognosticator. All right. Lesson five: God's work in perseverance. So we're going to consider the perseverance of the saints, the assurance of the saints. Uh, regarding assurance of salvation, there's two basic mistakes that we can make. Number one, having assurance when we shouldn't. That's a false conversion and a false assurance. Uh, people who are not saved, who have not put uh, saving faith in Jesus Christ, been transferred from life, uh, from death to life, uh, who we have, usually this is our fault in the church. We have given them false hope of salvation. And the second is those who have been saved, have been uh, purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ, and yet have no firm foundation to stand upon, no, no assurance of uh, God's good work in their life. Whereas the former is probably the more common mistake in the church at large. In fact, I, I would say it's definitely the more common mistake in the church uh, as we have shifted to churches that are just 100% how many people can we get in the door? How fast can we get them in? How fast can we get them incorporated into different things going on in the church so that we can retain them? Uh, it's really easy to give somebody a false uh, sense of security and salvation. Uh, and yet the latter will probably be the more common mistake for those of us in the school of ministry because we're constantly calling people, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Uh, be aware of this fallen nature within yourself. And then people leave going like, I'm pretty sure I'm not saved. <laughs> so we got to be, we got to be careful on our side of the camp here. Uh, an extreme example of a lack of assurance is uh, William Cowper. Uh, Piper is going to quote him. Uh, here's, <laughs> this is just encouraging, it just uh, uplifting stuff. Uh, loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed possibility of better things to come where it once ended. You will tell me that this cold gloom will be succeeded by a cheerful spring and endeavor to encourage me to hope 
for a spiritual change resembling it, but it will be a lost labor. Nature revives again, but a soul once slain lives no more. <laughs> this guy's done pastoral counseling. <laughs> My friends, I now expect that I shall see yet again. I, I think it necessary to the existence of divine truth that he who once had possession of it should never finally lose it. I admit the solidity, is that the right word? Solidity. Solidity. Yeah, there it is. Uh, of this reasoning in every case but my own. And why not my own? I forestall the answer. God's ways are mysterious. He giveth no account of his matters. An answer that would serve my purpose as well as theirs that use it. There is mystery in my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. What is he saying? He's saying, uh, yes, I believe that those purchased by God are held by God, are kept by God. Uh, I know that salvation comes through Christ's work and not our work. I think I just might be the exception because my life is especially horrible. Uh, now, it, it is almost comical to read it coming from him. Uh, and yet, friends, I would guarantee you in ministry, you are going to run into people that you know and love who will say this over and over and over to you. And you will strive to convince them of God's good work of salvation. Uh, strive to convince them that Christ's power to save is stronger than their power to sin or any condemnation they've brought with them. And they will not believe you. And this will make you want to jump off the boat. Cooper had John Newton himself trying to convince him of this repeatedly. And we would still always find a place for it. So sad. All right. So it is our prayer that God would use this lesson to comfort those who are tempted to despair. Despair is, it is more than just a momentary uh, lack and loss of faith and hope. Uh, it's actually casting aspersions on the very nature of God and on the power of God to save and keep his people. Uh, hopefully, mercifully, to shake those who are tempted towards self-confidence. So we, we don't want to lose confidence in God and his power, and we certainly don't want to put confidence in ourselves and our own power. All right, so let's look at a few definitions here. Assurance of salvation, the internal sense we may have based upon certain evidences in our life that we are truly born again and will persevere as Christians until the end of our lives. Eternal security, another term for the perseverance of the saints. Uh, it, it is funny in this area, if you talk about the perseverance of the saints that uh, God will cause those who belong to him to continue to be faithful, not because of their goodness, but because of his. You'll get a big, giant amen. You talk about eternal security, and people go, oh, once saved, always saved. So I, I say talk about the perseverance of the saints because <laughs> uh, don't just lead people down the path that they don't even know what they're doing. Uh, the doctrine, perseverance of the saints doctrine, that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Again, not by their power, but by his. So let's look at perseverance of the saints here. As with irresistible grace, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is necessitated 
by the doctrine of unconditional election. Uh, before we jump in and go through a whole bunch of scriptures and uh, talk about why that's true, what, what do you guys think? Why is that true? Why is uh, the perseverance of the saints necessitated by the doctrine of unconditional election? Okay, so uh, if you've been chosen and you can't refuse God's choosing of salvation for you, uh, then once he's chose you, he's not going to unchoose you, which is true. And one step further, go ahead, Aiden. Uh, I would say the like unconditional election argues for the unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness of God. Good, yes. Yeah, so one of the questions should be, why did God choose you? Uh, if it's unconditional, if it's not uh, conditioned upon your great faithfulness and productivity in the kingdom of God, but the righteousness of Christ being put upon you while you were a dead sinner, uh, the fact that some of that old nature still remains, therefore, doesn't disqualify you because that's not what qualified you. Right. Does that make sense. All right. So let's let's bear that out in uh, what we look at here. John 6, 38 to 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish no one can snatch them out of my hand. I once preached an entire sermon based on no one can snatch them out of his hand, but we can choose to jump. So, uh, too shabby. Whoa. <laughs> yep, yep, I remember it distinctly. Uh, evidently, I'm not included in the no one, <laughs> right? No one, including me, can snatch them out of his hand. All that the Father have given to me are mine. Oh my gosh, bad sermons. Uh, that's why, Jay, you'll be you'll be happy to know this. Uh, a couple months ago, one Josiah Fentress was in doing some uh, moving and shaking in the office, and we came across uh, in one of the storage room two large boxes of sermon tapes from Eden Worship Center, uh, dating back fifteen to twenty years, and uh, all but two of them went in the dumpster. <laughs> Evidence is gone. <laughs> Not before I got to see one of them. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so one of the most uh, precious passages when it comes to the perseverance of the saints, in fact, I would say the most precious, is found at the end of Romans 8. Let's just turn to that together quickly. Romans 8. The end of it described as the unbreakable chain or the golden chain of salvation. <clears throat> Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So from him foreknowing us, 
to at the end of all days, which we have not reached yet, the glorification of the saints, including us. We find his knowledge, his choosing out, his calling out, his justifying, and his glorifying. It's the golden chain. It's the unbreakable chain because that is all the work of God. And we are not found in Romans 8.30 at all, except as the recipients of God's good work. Uh, that means if you are foreknown by God, you are also glorified by God at the end. It, it will happen not because of you, but because of him. So backing up, and it, this is why this is, I think, the most precious passage, uh, not just for ourselves, but in helping other people walk through times of discouragement where they feel like the chain in their life is broken. And you can point them towards hope and assurance in God. Uh, one of the verses that everybody seems to know is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Man, I heard that one a lot in all the uh, church circles that I, we were around when I was a young man. Man, we said that one a lot. We almost never went to verse 29 and verse 30, which are the why that that is true. So if God is going to work in this situation, if God is going to cause good to come out of, uh, out of it, cause it to uh, work according to his good purpose, here's why. Verse 29, for those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The reason that God can give the struggling believer hope in this moment that God will work in this situation for their good and his glory is the fact that it's God who has known and predestined and called and justified and is working towards glorification right now. In fact, with him, it's a finished deal. Uh, therefore, we can have hope. If that's not true, right? If, if we jettison all the doctrines of grace, as so many of our... Arminian brothers and sisters would do, I think you also have to tear out Romans 8, 28. If everything is down to my free will and my choosing, well, there's enough people with free will and evil intent out there that there's no way that we can say with any degree of confidence that there is a God who will work all things for good. And therefore, when, when tragedy strikes, when uh, something horrible happens, uh, you cannot run to that passage for help and comfort because actually I don't know how any good could come from this. This is just evil in the world and we just lament that. As opposed uh, to standing back and saying there is true and genuine evil in the world because we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world and yet God has not for one second relinquished his seat upon the throne as the king of all kings. Dude, that's just good to hear in this class. <laughs> So encouraging. All right. Uh, many more verses could be offered in support of this idea. Uh, for instance, we're, we're in the book of Philippians right now. Uh, Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So is it possible that Paul is simply mistaken in his confidence in God's completion of the work that it's, he has started? It, is it possible that Paul's just putting too much hope in the work of God? I hope not. No. Right? I have I have uh, extended family members who would make that argument. 
because they think Paul is, like we saw in the video on Tuesday, yikes. Right? They, they think most of what Paul says is bad, and therefore, uh, well, yeah, he was just kind of overstating it. If the author of Scripture is overstating it, Scripture is no longer trustworthy. Tracking with that? Good grief. It's a dangerous position, uh, especially when it's just to prop up what I already believe, what I'm bringing to the text about how God works to save and keep believers. Perhaps the most compelling reason to believe in the perseverance of the saints is how this doctrine, if linked to God's faithfulness, is seen in the New Testament. So when we uh, look at the perseverance of the saints and the faithfulness of God, it, it just pops up all over the place. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Uh, and then verse uh, seven, uh, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, verse eight, sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with the son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is making the argument uh, that you will not be lacking in any good gift, that you will not be falling short on the day that Jesus Christ appears. In fact, you will be presented guiltless, not because of what you have done, verse 9, but because God is faithful. That's way better than the perseverance of the saints because we're all going to be good enough and smart enough and doggone it, Jesus likes us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. By the way, that was, that was a good adaption of Stuart Smalley <laughs> from Saturday Night Live in the 90s. First uh, Thessalonians, we're the only two. Just keep making these references that we're the only people. Yeah. Corrine, I didn't want to include you in. Yeah, I know, I know. It's okay. But see, look at look at all of the like white that Jason and I are spouting, and you look young and, and spiteful. It's there. It's there. Don't look close. First Thessalonians five twenty three and twenty four. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. <laughs> it's like he's typing in all caps right there. I, I just love it. Uh, our perseverance is as certain as God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is at stake in our perseverance. All right, so here's an articulation of this doctrine of grace, of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, it, fo it follows from what was just said, that the people of God will persevere to the end and not be lost. The foreknowledge... And predestination, the predestined are called, sorry, the, the foreknown are predestined, the predestined are called, the called are justified, the justified are glorified. No one is lost from this group. To belong to this people is to be eternally secure. Uh, you have a lengthy section in your notes, I'm hoping, with a whole bunch of like scripture references there. Uh, so I, I'm just going to give you a few of the bullet points there. Uh, our faith must endure to the end if we are to be saved. Uh, and then a giant list of scriptures that you see going along with that. Uh, Mark 13, 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, it's, not, it's not conditional upon our endurance. Uh, and yet here we find, as we talked about in the last lesson, uh, how sanctification is being used the same word in two different ways. Uh, both the 
uh, sanctified at being made holy, which is what sanctified means, right? Uh, built on, what is the Latin there? Sanctus or something like that. Uh, so we are being made holy. So at salvation, we are made holy, set apart for God and saved. And yet throughout our life, we are progressively being made holy, being set apart for God. If we are being set apart for God, uh, we will endure with faith till the end. And if we don't, we're going to prove at the end that we were never actually sanctified. Although you can, you can fully be a member of the church and not be sanctified. That you can fool all of us. The truth is you will not fool God. That, that's what that is getting to. Not that we should work really hard to do it. It's at the end, it's those who persevere in faith who will be saved. Uh, the second is the obedience uh, evidence inner re inner renewal from God is necessary for final salvation. So it's not just enough that we would come to church and, and sort of ish believe the right things and ish do the right things. Uh, it has to be a renewal internally that God works upon us. Number three, God's elect cannot be lost. Uh, again, a scat of scriptures. So if you are uh, listening to this as a podcast and you don't have them, I encourage you to call Jason Gingrich, 555, no, whatever. Remember, remember in the days where like every single like television or movie phone number was 555? With the exception of, uh, hey, Jenny, I got your number, 8675309, which was actually some check named Jenny's actual phone number. That just got blown up by everybody in the country. Just awesome. All right. Let's look at the necessity of obedient faith. Although it's been stated and implied before now, let's say it very clearly. It is necessary for the elect to persevere in obedience of faith. There is no salvation without perseverance. This is why we call people, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If, in fact... You are claiming this saving faith, claiming it. No, no, it's, it's Christ who has worked upon me. It's Christ who has saved me, not my own works. And yet there is zero evidence of you persevering in the faith. There's zero evidence of you walking in obedience to, word, to the word of God. Uh, we're going to question if that claim that Christ has saved you is genuine, right? Because there will be some perseverance, some obedience of the faith. Colossians 1, 21 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister. So what must happen in order for us to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach? Continuing faith. Yeah, there's going to be a continuing in the faith. There's, there's going to be an evidence that the Christian is stable and steadfast. Does that mean that we cannot have moments where we waver, where we struggle? even gripped with uh, doubts and anxieties and depressions. 
No, in fact, some of the most powerful uh, preachers in our Reformed history, uh, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, suffered crippling anxiety and depression, uh, both of which at times had trouble getting out of bed. All right, so there will be moments of deep heartache and struggle. And yet when you back up from the moment and look at the timeline of their whole life, what you're going to see is continuing faith. I couldn't get out of bed on Tuesday and I dragged myself out of bed on Wednesday, right? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't face it this week and the next week I set my face to put my hope in the living God to put solid rock back under my feet to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which I have heard. Does that make sense? That is the measure by which we are called to see it, which is why in the church, when we see people struggling, we should back up and be patient. They will tell us if you give them weeks, they will tell you if you give them months, they will tell you if you give them years, they will etch it in stone. They will prove the genuineness or the falseness of their faith. This emphasis is found not only in Paul. Uh, we find it in Matthew, Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, Jesus said. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. School of ministry, that is a passage of comfort. <laughs> because when you see that evidenced in the people that you love and serve, you will be tempted to lose heart. And Jesus said, this is what it's going to look like. This is what you will see. Uh, there will be many who are associated with uh, the body of Christ who are not actually of Christ. And when hard times come, uh, when the decision between following in obedience that is costly and going with what is either personally comfortable uh, or the current of the world, they'll choose that direction every single time. And we should not be surprised by it, although <laughs> we will be brokenhearted by it. Notice the reoccurring theme from John's writing as well. John in Revelation 2, verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise. Verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Verse 26, the one who conquers it. And he who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Uh, also find evidence of that in Revelation 3, although we're not going to take time to read those verses. Uh, so when we, when we think about the one who conquers, uh, what does the broader context of Revelation say it means to conquer? Uh, again, looking at the trajectory, the history of our church, uh, there were times where we meant something really, really different by uh, in Christ, you are more than conquerors. It, it meant every problem that came your way, if you just prayed in a certain way and believed in a certain way and stuck to it, even when all evidence was to the contrary, that B 
because of your faith, mandated by your faith, and hopefully uh, some sort of offering that you gave in there along the way, uh, then God is obligated himself to come along and fix things and make you triumphant over whatever situation it is. And in fact, if you don't see that, whether it is health or whether it is a relational or you know whatever the situation, if you don't see it, it's because you had a lack of faith. It feels kind of gross to say that out loud. Uh, so what, what does Revelation say it means to conquer? To conquer is to repent and to renew good works. Revelation 2 verse 5. To conquer is to be faithful unto death. Revelation 2 verse 10. To conquer is to hold fast. Revelation 2 25. And to keep Jesus works until the end. Verse 26. To conquer is to wake up and walk with Jesus. Revelation 3, verses 3 through 4. To conquer is to be zealous. Revelation 3, verse 19. In other words, to conquer is to persevere in repentant faith. It doesn't mean that everything goes our way. It doesn't mean if I just hold on to faith hard enough and long enough that God will turn this situation. Uh, usually we mean that towards my happiness and ease. Like, uh, my good, my version of good that I've conjured in my head. Uh, it could mean to be more than a conqueror means that every drop of your lifeblood is shed for the sake of the gospel. And that guy here is well done, good and faithful servant, right? Not, oh, if only you'd had enough faith, you wouldn't have been martyred. God forbid. Hebrews 3, 5 through 6. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, verse 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Man, it's clinging to Christ. And on the days when we feel like I can't get out of bed on a Tuesday, we cling to Christ on Thursday. We cling to him on Friday. We cling to him on Sunday when we gather with God's people. You're going to talk with people who, when they fall into these, these spirals of darkness and depression, the last thing that they want to do is be around God's people. Especially be around somebody who's smiling. Oh, yeah. Praise God. How, how are you doing, brother? <coughs> Terrible. <laughs> Suicidal. <laughs> right? And they'll want to pull back. No, we cling to God and his people. All right. Oh, I should preach less and, and go faster here. All right. Uh, some maintain it is possible for someone to confess Christ to be saved and then lose every evidence of faith, uh, perhaps even denying Christ at some point in their life. Uh, proponents of such a view will often cite 1 Corinthians 3 in support of that view. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, Verse 13 will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it is revealed by fire and by fire will test what sort of work has been done. If the work was 
that anyone who's built on a foundation survives, he will receive reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is built up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, uh, uh, for the sake of time, let's just keep going. First Peter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power who are, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the end. Uh, why is that so significant? Why is it significant that we are uh, not only saved, we have this living hope, but we are anticipating that hope that is imperishable, undefiled, un unfading, kept for us in heaven, even as God guards us by his power right now. Why is that so important for our understanding of the perseverance of the saints? All right, moving on. Just kidding. Why is it? Why is it important? Well, it's not. A, it's it's not um, dependent on your immediate temporal. Yeah. Because it's not screwing up me. <laughs> it means we can't screw it up. And if we could, we would. Yeah. Uh, all of us struggle. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Our hope must be pinned to the imperishable, undefiled, unfading work of God on the behalf of the believer. All right, so let's reflect a little bit on fallen runners. Uh, sadly, most of us have known those who seem to be such a promising start in the race of faith only to fall out of the race altogether later on. That they seemed like brothers and sisters running the race of faith right next to us. What are we to make of that? If we, if we hold to the perseverance of the saints, not because uh, we think anything special about the saint, but of the God who saves them, uh, our response would be to say that these runners were genuinely saved but lost their salvation because of unbelief. Mm. Is that where we're going to stand? Uh, that would be a contradiction of what we've seen in Scripture of how God works in saving his people, right? Uh, so what are we to say? 1 John 2, 18 to 19. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, who's, who's the they when he says that? Who did he just say that they were? Antichrist. Like, like the guy with 666 tattooed on his forehead, right? Going to give us all a microchip in our hand. Is, is that the dude we're talking about? Yeah. No, it's those who live and belief and actions are anti-Christ, against Christ. Or in not just as one who opposes, but as one who puts forth another gospel, right? So as Paul addresses the Galatians, he's going to use really striking language and go, who has bewitched you? Like th this is antichrist to think that there is another means of salvation. They went out from us, but they weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. 
that it might become plain that they were not of us. So can we say that anyone who leaves our church is antichrist and has lost their salvation? Yes. The answer is yes. Next page. <laughs> I love that someone just went, Jason. <laughs> so clearly not. How do, how do we understand this? The, this, the, the burden that comes with the whole once saved, always saved thing yeah. is the fact that you can live however you want. It doesn't matter. But the right. truth of once saved, always saved right. is the that. reality of if you have it, right. you, you keep it. But losing salvation doesn't exist because you have to have it to lose it. If you have it, you can't lose it. Right. No, I, I get that. I just, from what, what maybe I just blanked out in a minute from when you spoke and said that. I can't even rephrase what you exactly just said. Run the tape back. But can we, you asked the question, can we say that those that left us or that were part of us lost their salvation? Yes. Or yep. however you word it. Yep. Well, no. No. Salvation isn't lost. No. So here's where this gets really weedy. Uh, this is easy to talk about on a Thursday night. At 6.49 p.m. in a school of ministry class in our conference room. This is really hard when it is a precious, precious prayer warrior grandmother lamenting her granddaughter who grew up in church, was baptized, was did, did all the right things, and has now uh, walked away from the faith. And... Trying to convince said grandmother, based on an emotional, rhetorical argument, that that child was never saved, as evidenced by what they are seeing in front of them right now, uh, best of luck to you, right? Uh, the only thing that can work in her mind is some evil has come in and has stolen salvation from my precious little granddaughter. Are you following me? And yet, theologically, if we're going to be careful with God's word and careful in honoring God and his work of salvation, we have to say that's not the case. So here is my encouragement again. Uh, move slow and just keep backing up. Keep backing up so that you can see timeline. You can see trajectory. Why? Because people get stupid. In the moment, people do all kinds of crazy, sinful, stupid things. That does not mean that they have rejected Christ. It does not mean that they have uh, walked away from their faith. It might mean that they were stupid. And yet, if they are a believer, what you're going to see, and I would argue relatively quickly, is a move towards repentance. Why? Because they have an indwelling Holy Spirit who is sanctifying them. Do you not know that if you join your body with a prostitute, and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit in your heart, you are joining the Holy Spirit with a prostitute? That, that's the argument Paul's going to make. And in fact, when he says it, he says it because you know this, right? So you know everything in you is screaming, this isn't right. All you got to do is back up, be patient, and very quickly you will see the person who's headed in the wrong direction begin to have signs where that hardened exterior is cracking. Oh, and when it does, you just rejoice. You don't get a sledgehammer out and smash it. 
you continue to encourage them and point them to God's word and point them uh, to the forgiveness and the freedom that could be theirs. If they belong to Jesus, their eternal freedom is already won. Their, their eternal forgiveness is already won. They're, they're just not walking in any of it. They're walking in uh, pain and hurt and discomfort that they don't need to be. Oh, friend, walk out. Walk back into freedom. Uh, and then you have those whose lives never match up again. Uh, now, we don't have forever to wait, right? We can't actually wait till the end of their life and go, well, not a Christian. Uh, and even that, we don't know what is going on in their heart and mind and, and things we didn't get to see, uh, which is why the New Testament calls us as uh, those who serve the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, if someone's life over that trajectory is headed in the wrong direction, Paul goes, put that brother out of fellowship that their soul might be saved. Like, make it really clear, uh, brother, sister, we don't see any of this evidence in you, and we are terrified for your soul. Put your trust in Christ. Okay, that's not in the notes. We are we are burning daylight here. Actually, daylight's all the way gone, but it is what it is. All right. Uh, so Jesus is going to say, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, this is not a salvation based on our works. We did the will of God and therefore we get to go to heaven. That's not it. Because we have been saved, good works will follow. On that day, many will say, Lord, didn't I do lots of good stuff? Did I prophesy in your name? Did I cast out demons in your name? Did I do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me you worker of lawlessness. So let's consider in another text that someone raised as an objection to what we've just talked about, uh, the difficulty in Hebrews 6. Uh, what does it really teach? And does it teach that a genuine believer can lose their salvation? Hebrews 6, let's look at this together, uh, verse 4 through 9. And then at the end of it, let's let's discuss for just a second how might uh, the illustration in verse seven and eight prove that verse four through six are not describing a genuine believer. So he's going to give us an illustration in verses seven through eight that back us up into four through six that say this is not a genuine believer we uh, ever had in front of us. Verse four, Hebrews six, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they have crucified again the Son of God to their own heart and holding up contempt. To the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, the things that belong to salvation. So how does the illustration that he gives help us understand what we see in verses 4 through 6? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else do we see in there? Uh, 
and then get the same thing. Yeah, both both ground receives the exact same uh, rain or treatment or it, or seed, uh, the same cultivation. What is the what is the distinction and difference between um, the ground there? What they produce. Notice what is missing. There is no claim that initially that this ground produced good fruit, and then it switched, switched to bad fruit. It doesn't say that. It said one. <laughs> uh, when you look at what it produces, it produces thorns and thistles. It is worthless and ready to be cursed. The other one produces a crop that's useful and receives the blessing of God. So is it possible that someone, uh, through a desire to be accepted or a desire for identification, uh, could go through all the steps of uh, masquerading as a Christian could go through all the steps of looking like they're doing the right thing, looking like they're producing fruit, and yet actually have it be thorns and thistles and ready to be cursed and burned. Absolutely. And all you have to do to see which is which is apply heat and pressure and time. Uh, in fact, I, I would make the argument in the people in your life and my life where your brain, you hear that and your, your brain goes to people. It, not hypotheticals, it goes to people. Uh, if you look deep enough and close enough, what we find is again and again and again, when the time came to choose self or choose uh, Jesus, they chose self, not Jesus. Self, not Jesus. Self, not Jesus. They, they did a whole bunch of right things that look good while choosing self. And I'll do as many good things as I can because I'm actually choosing self because I want you to like me. I want you to accept me. I, I want to feel like I'm going to heaven. But I'm constantly choosing self, choosing self, choosing self. There's no designation here that those who have heard the word of God, been enlightened, sat under the ministry of God's word, have seen the heavenly gift right in front of them. Uh, there's nothing left. God has nothing more to offer them but Christ crucified. And they didn't want it. They wanted themselves. It, that makes this a terrifying thing, which again should drive us to our knees. Oh, God. Open blind eyes. Yeah. John Piper is very personal to give it the sharpest point. If in the coming years I commit apostasy and fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted the word of God and the spirit of God and the miracles of God. I have drunk of his word. The spirit has touched me. I've seen his miracles. I have been his instrument, at least for a few. I love that for a few. Oh, humble Piper. But if over the next 10, 20 years, John Piper begins to cool off spiritually, lose interest in spiritual things, becomes more fascinated with making money and writing Christless books, and I buy the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating, the children can fend for themselves, and the Church of Christ is a drag, and the incarnation is a myth, and there is one life to live, so let us eat, drink, and be merry. If that happens, then know that the truth is this. John Piper was mightily deceived in the first 50 years of his life. His faith was an alien vestige of his father's joy. His fidelity to his wife was a temporary passion and compliance with social pressure. His fatherhood was an outworking of natural instincts. 
His preaching was driven by the love of words and crowds. His writing was an affair, was a love affair with fame. And his praying was the deepest delusion of all, an attempt to get God to supply the resources of his own vanity. If this possibly does not make me serious and village, vil, vil, vigilant in the pursuit of everlasting joy, what will? Good Lord. <laughs> Just an unveiling of all the sin and selfishness that could go into even a ministry with someone as revered and loved as John Piper. If that can be true of him, it can be true of us and it can be true of our brothers and sisters at Eden Worship Center. Therefore, let us speak the truth in love as long as it's called today, right? All right. Uh, so let's talk just quickly here about assurance. Uh, our assurance of faith depends on a three-legged stool. Number one, God's promises. Number two, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And number three, the witness of the Holy Spirit. The first leg of this three-legged stool uh, is by far the most important. We've already looked in a number of texts promising that God will bring all his chosen ones to glory. So here's another, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Here's a similar text, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It would be a mistake to conclude, however, that the promises of God the objective reality that stands behind them are the only means by which we can have assurance. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I love that. I, having people right now who are struggling in our church, uh, Paul's hope is not... Seriously, brother, seriously, sister, you're good enough to turn this around. It's Jesus Christ is in you. If that is true, he will turn it around. How precious is that? 1 John 2, 4 through 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All right, so here's how Jonathan Edwards connected our assurance of salvation to our obedience. Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's Edwards. It is not God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption increasing in grace, obtaining the lively exercise of it. Although self-examination be a duty of great use and importance, by no means to be neglected, yet it is not the principal means by which the saints do get sanctification of the good estate. Assurance is not obtained so much by self-examination as by action. Look all you want. Say all you want. Believe all you want. 
No, it's action. Your life will bear witness to what you believe to be true, whether you like it or not. Oh, praise God for his sanctifying work of his Holy Spirit. Uh, let's take five minutes, stretch your legs, go to the bathroom if you need to, get some tea or coffee, and we will come back with Lesson 6, The Living Word by Meditation and Prayer. What is our hope in life and death? In Christ alone, in Christ alone. What is our only confidence? In that our souls to Him belong, who holds our days within His hands. Apart from his commands, and what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Well, just all the way through this lesson. Good sir. All right. All right, got some quotes 
here. J.I. Packer, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man, spiritually in a way that nothing else is, so that how we pray is as important as the question, is as important a question as we can ever face. Luther said, I generally pray two hours every day, except on very busy days. On those days, I pray three. <laughs> Love that. Uh, Dallas Willard, Bible memorization is absolutely fundamental to spiritual formation. If I had to choose between all the disciplines of the spiritual life, I would choose Bible memorization because it is a fundamental way of filling our minds with what it needs. This is the book of the law, shall never depart out of your mouth. That's where you need it. How does it get to your mouth? Memorization. Chuck Swindoll, I know of no, no other single practice in the Christian life more rewarding, practically speaking, than memorizing scripture. No other single exercise pays greater spiritual dividends. Your prayer life will be strengthened. Your witnessing will be much sharper and more effective. Your attitude and outlook will begin to change. Your mind will become alert and observant. Your confidence and assurance will be enhanced. Your faith will be solidified. These encouragements, however, will have little impact if not accompanied by the proper and biblical understanding of these two great spiritual disciplines. So that's what we're looking at here. Word of God and prayer, meditation on the word and prayer. Uh, preliminary definitions, in Jesus' name, term referring to prayer made on Jesus' authorization, consistent with his character. Means of grace, any activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. Prayer, personal communication with God, sufficiency of scripture, the idea that scripture contains all the words of God that he intends for his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, everything we need for life and godliness, uh, for trusting in him perfectly, for obeying him perfectly, God has given to us. And um, I think in the, in the evangelical churches, this is the issue, sufficiency of scripture, more than the inerrancy of scripture which is sort of a battle that's been fought and won the ones who deny that are sort of outside the the camp it's the sufficiency of scripture uh waiting on the lord posture of the heart during prayer in which we wait quietly before god for some sense of guidance in our prayer also for an assurance of god's presence and of his answer to our prayer all right faith awakened through his word we talked about in the in the first class um, the doctrine of Scripture at length, uh, and so we're we're sort of returning to that topic, but from a little different angle. Uh, we're we're not considering at this point um, the the nature of Scripture and how we interpret Scripture so much, uh, but more the role that it plays uh, in our Christian lives, uh, and so. The goal of, of studying God's word is that we would desire more of it. I mean, we would grow in our, in, our, in our desire for the word of God. I trust as you, as you study and as you grow in the faith that you, you find coming to God's word to be uh, a richer experience, a, a, a thing that, that you find great satisfaction and, and uh, excitement in. Not that you always have goosebumps at every moment, but... Uh, the more we grow with the Lord, the more we, we love his voice. So uh, we have already examined Romans 10 uh, on Tuesday night. We're going to look at it again. 
Um, Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him of whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we see this definition of, of faith um, being laid out for us in this passage. What, it, what is faith here? It's believing the message. Hearing the message, believing the message, believing what God has said. It's, it's responding to God's word with belief. Douglas Moose says, hearing, the kind of hearing that can lead to faith, can only happen if there is definite salvific word from God that is proclaimed. A word through which God is now proclaiming the availability of eschatological salvation, which can awaken faith in those who hear it, is the word of Christ. The message whose contents is the lordship and resurrection of Christ. Of course, eschatological having to do with the last thing. So it's God's great word of salvation, eternal salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. Then jot down also 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And hear, hear how Paul now in these two passages describes uh, the awakening of faith in the Thessalonian believers. So first, first Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So, so how does Paul describe this awakening of faith happening in the Thessalonian believers? They were converted through what? Through the preaching, right? Through the, the preaching of the word. And, they, and what, was their, what was their posture towards it? What was their response to it? belief acceptance you you received it as what it really was not the words of men the words of god so then the the, the preaching of the word accompanied with power and the holy spirit conviction of sin so faith awakened here through the working of of god's spirit through god's word first peter chapter 1 verses 22 through 25 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again. Now, now listen here to, to this description of how it is that, that one is born again. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. You were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And what's the seed? The word of God, word of God that was preached to you. So, so what does this text have to tell us about evangelism? Preaching. 
Preach the gospel at all times when necessary. Use words. Do we say yes and amen to that? <laughs> Tim says yes and amen. We say take a hike. What are you talking about? Right? The, the, the evangelism must include the proclamation of the gospel. It must be articulated. It, it must be proclaimed. It must be spoken. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 2 through 5. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Of course, Paul's, Paul's dealing with the Galatian Christians who are, who are, are being seduced into a works righteousness into the way you're going to grow and mature and be sanctified is by doing these physical things, observing uh, these days and these laws and these customs and this surgical procedure. And, and by doing these things, this is how you'll be sanctified. And Paul is, is outraged by it. So the, the reception of the Spirit at conversion, the continuing supply of the Spirit in the Christian life come by what? Hearing. Hearing with faith. That, that's Paul's point. Is that we, we are, salvation comes to us by hearing. And sanctification comes to us through our hearing. It is God's spirit working through God's word. Faith then sustained through his word. Having examined the role of scripture at the beginning of the Christian's life. We'll explore the role of the scripture in the daily life of the Christian. Classic text in this regard, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. Take a look at that with me. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. How does the righteous man prosper and yield fruit? Walking in the counsel of the Lord, and he's like what? A tree... Planted by streams of water. Every day being nourished, every day being strengthened, every day being being renewed, bearing much fruit. His desire, des uh, delight is in the word. He meditates on it. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil. Having done all to stand firm, therefore stand, having fastened the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit and with prayer, all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So Paul, Paul gives us this, the, arm, the armor of God here in Ephesians 6, and it's mostly what kind of armor? 
breastplate, shield, right? De defensive armor. The one offensive weapon is the word of God. The word of God. And, uh, and a, good, a, a, good, a good reason for us to, um, to reject the classic evidentialist apologetic approach that says, don't bring the Bible into your conversation until the very end because they reject the Bible. And, and when you're talking to the non-believer and they mock scripture and you say, and they say, well, what's, what, what's so wrong with this? And you say, because the Bible says this. And they say, what do we care? And Christians are tempted to say, well, we just shouldn't quote the Bible because they don't believe it. That passage would tell us otherwise, right? Vodi Bakum gives us great, great illustration of uh, two knights coming out to battle each other. And the one knight says to the other one, put your sword down. I don't even believe in your sword. What are you going to, are you going to put it down? <laughs> You're going to run him through with it and then he'll believe in it. Uh, and so that's how the scripture speaks of the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That was Hebrews 4, 12. Second Timothy three is often cited in support of the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. It also speaks of this topic that we're looking at right now. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work and, and so we, we 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 hear statements like this and we're used to hang hearing them and we need to to take the step farther and actually examine our lives in light of these things especially these things we hear all the time and to say when i view scripture do i view it as profitable do, do i really view it the way that paul's describing it here and I think we would all go, I do. And so then the next question is, does my life confirm that I really think that? Does it, does it really speak to that? God, God promises to sustain our faith through his word. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us to his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Why, why do we focus specifically on the promises of God? Through them sin and divine nature have led to escape the corruption. Yeah, right. So, so... God's promises are great. God's promises are, are precious. Uh, through them, we become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. What, a, what an astounding statement. Um, that God's word has supernatural power to sustain. Uh, trusting in the promises of God. We, uh, Christianity is, in one sense, a backwards-looking faith. 
We look to the finished work of the cross. Um, but it's really a forwards-looking faith. We're looking to these future promises. We're looking for the fulfillment. Uh, we're looking for the payoff uh, of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, and so um, what this does for us, Scripture says, is to strengthen us um, and cause us to walk um, to walk the walk of faith. Romans 4. Um, well, let me just have you guys look these up. Somebody look up Romans 4, 20 and 21. And somebody look up 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Somebody look up Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. Somebody look up 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14. Okay, if somebody's got Romans 4, 20 and 21, do it. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. All right, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and holiness and completion of the fear of God. Okay, Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. Second Peter three thirteen and fourteen. What was it? Second Peter three thirteen and fourteen. Got it. <clears throat> but according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens or <clears throat> for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. All right. Thank you. And of course, the supreme model of living by the power of God's promises is. Christ himself, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4. Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So now the sovereignty of God and prayer. Uh so this is a, one of those hot button issues uh, that if you've had much dialogue with people who are uh, deeply troubled in spirit about the doctrines of grace uh, and your acceptance of them, they might have come around to this. What's the point of praying then? Praying doesn't matter. If God's sovereign, if he's going to do whatever he's going to do, if, if our God's in the heavens and does all that he pleases, then what's the point of praying? How could prayer possibly change anything? Of course, I hope you know the response is, if God's not sovereign, why do you pray? Why, why, why would you? Everybody prays like a Calvinist when we're praying for our loved ones to be saved, right? God saved them. Uh, that, that's exactly what we're praying. Why would we pray that if we didn't believe God was sovereign? But the, the argument, of course, the person doesn't think we shouldn't pray. The person just wants to argue against God's uh, sovereignty. But without a clear understanding of how God's sovereignty and prayer interact, we might be tempted. We might be tempted. And there are those um, frozen chosen who, who 
who've grown cold in their faith. Their prayer life is, is empty uh, because they've got some lofty theology of sovereignty that's actually made them complacent. Uh, and that must never be us. Um, it ought to be a great motivation to prayer, uh, a great consolation in prayer. It, it ought to make us pray confident prayers and bold prayers and enthusiastic prayers. But one, one obvious response to this problem that the Bible simply commands us to pray. Why do we pray? Because God tells us to pray. We don't need more of an answer than that. Of course, God gives us more answer than that most of the time. He wouldn't need to. God could just do the what we've all done as parents. Why? Because I said so. And I'm your dad. Um, God can do that. And sometimes God does that. Right? Job, I'd like to get an answer here, God. And God says, who exactly do you think you are? Um, but as a loving father, of course, we're not doing a killer job in the parental department if that's our standard go-to for everything. And we never give our kids the motivation to obey. Uh, show them why it's good and right and beautiful and for their best. Uh, and God, God is like that. But God commands us to pray, and that is enough. He says so. He doesn't need to explain how it works to us. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. All right. We ought to be steadfast in prayer and that with thanksgiving. No more explanation needed. To this we might add the example of many saints within scripture where we see God's people praying fervently. Centuries of believers after scripture. We could say more than that though. We could provide a reason why we should pray when God is sovereign over all things. We, we are given much in scripture that would lead us to desire to pray. Um, and so in the book of Job, Job 42, verses 7 through 10. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So why does God say that Job will pray for these quote-unquote friends? If it was already God's intention to not deal with them according to their folly, why, why this whole process? Right? Right, so, so God says, Job's going to pray for you. I'm going to hear Job's prayer, and I'm not going to deal with you according to your folly for speaking falsely about me. But if God had already decided not to deal with them according to their folly for speaking falsely about him, why, have, why go through that? Why, why do the steps? Why, why, why would God do that? It's a weird, it's a weird question because... The, I mean, there's a deeper level that's happening past what I'm about to say, but on the basis, the question 
the premise of the question is something like if if God knows the desires of his people why why is it bad that it, it's confusing because the point the point is that God foreknows the desires of his people and is proclaiming I'm going to grant their desires when they tell when they ask mm-hmm. so the premise of the question is confusing to me because it's it's based upon well why, why is God doing something when he knows he's going to do something based upon what's it I, I'm confused <laughs> what's that Okay, so here it is, and here's why why I bring this question up, because this is a this is a real life question that you're going to get for your whole life. People never get tired of this question, and so you shouldn't get tired of answering it, but you should have an answer, because it's a real question, people of God. If God has determined He's going to save someone. Why does someone else have to go preach the gospel to them? Why can't God just save them? If God has determined to, to forgive Job's friends, why did Job need to pray for them? That these are the, these are the, the real-life questions you're going to get. Um, and the answer is because God ordains the ends and he ordains the means. He ordains the ends, the friends are going to be forgiven, and he ordains the means, Job's going to pray for them. And therein lies great motivation for us, joyous motivation. It's like, it's like when Paul, you know, gets run out of a city and stoned and they think he's dead and they leave him. And then he gets back up and God says, go back into the city because I have people there. They're going to respond, right? God has elect and they need Paul to go preach the gospel. And so we have this great motivation of knowing our prayers are doing something we don't have we don't have a a de- fatalistic deterministic thing uh what what we would call Cal- calvinism is not determinism we would call it compatibilism there, there's a it's compatible that god is sovereign and that what we do matters the choices we make matter um it's not deterministic it's not it's not nothing matters who cares it matters a whole lot and this is exactly what we see god ordains the ends and he ordains the way that we're going to get there too um and so that's that's a that's a wonderful thing and so we we are motivated to pray our prayers do matter yeah what's the uh in my experience of scripture of like the uh good works do separately uh, just of like him setting the means in front of you not necessarily the ends of those good works but like just putting those good works where his workmanship created for good works that we might walk in them. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. Yeah. We, we're, he, we're created for good works. God has, whatever God does, he does through means. That's, that's, that's what he does. He wouldn't have to, um, but he does. He, he chooses to save through the proclamation of the gospel. He, he chooses to, um, Christ chooses to build his church so that the gates of hell won't prevail against it um, by the means of us. Um, Usually when people ask that question, it's not because they care about human extra steps or God's extra steps. Their absolute intention is to undermine the sovereignty of God. <laughs> to say, God, 
is you're completely wrong, and it, it, it's basically an argument against that. Uh, one of the things, and it's great because it's uh, coming up on us in a week, uh, that I have frequently taken people to is Valentine's Day. Uh, and it, that God ordains not just the end, but the means by which it's going to happen. So Valentine's Day, my wife knows that I love her. Right? Like, I don't need to say it. I don't need to show it. I don't need to do it. But God has ordained a means between husband and wife where uh, she knows that I love her, but she really appreciates when I say it and when I show it. So I'm no more married by giving her flowers uh, or a card or, let's face it, in our house, maybe a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> she deeply loves Jason's like, no, no. Uh, but there's, there's something that happens in that exchange that proves the genuineness of love. And so you see on my end, I'm doing something that, that shows me, demonstrates to me that I'm loving her well. And on her end, she uh, sees a demonstration that I'm being well loved. And so God has given us this means of, you know, whatever the means is like this, like prayer here specifically in focus. And the person praying uh, is seeing and being mentally reminded, my hope is in God, not myself. That whatever mm -hmm. power I have in this situation, it doesn't belong to me, God, it belongs to you. I need that reminder that I'm, I'm loving God well and trusting him well. Uh, and God, having made us in his image, we, this is just an echo of his personality. Uh, he loves when his people love and worship him well. Mm -hmm. And so when his people then submit to him and, and call upon him, he goes, yeah, I'm going to hear that. Because he knew the end from the beginning. He didn't need to do that. He could have skipped it. Uh, he loves to be worshipped rightly, and we need to worship him rightly. Therefore, he's ordained the means. It's not actually an extra step. He did it for our good mm -hmm. and his glory. Right. Yeah, God's glorified. God's glorified as he works through the means of our prayer or gospel proclamation. God, God's glorified by making straight lines out of crooked sticks. I mean, it's, it's to the glory of God to do this. And so were you going to say something? No. All right. No. Um, so. Uh, were you going to sign something? Were you going to sign something? Uh, Genesis 20. Genesis 20, verses 6 and 7. This God said to Abimelech in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Remember, Abraham has, uh, for the second time now, <laughs> given away his wife. This time, God did not let what I believe the atrocity of the first time to happen again. Uh, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. If you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Verse 17 says, Then Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife, his female slaves, so that they bore children. So if Abraham had not, if Abraham had not prayed for Abimelech, would Abimelech have been healed? Or, yeah, yes, hold on. It was, yes. We can confidently say no, because that's not how it played out. He did pray, and it did not. It did, it did, it did it not. But true, but the... Before we get into that. <laughs> yes, yes and yes. 
Before you say your dumb thing, let me say this smart thing. Go ahead. Sorry. I think you're right. No, you're, you are also right. I think that we are both right. Uh, I think that both things are true in what you just said, um, but also that in if, if God desires that I, that I uh, am faithful to him, if I am not faithful to him in doing what he asks of me, God doesn't need me to still do what he wills. But you are also right that it couldn't have happened So Mordecai and Esther, uh, if you don't do this, God will raise up deliverance from another place. But you and your family will perish. Uh, in this in particular instance, we're not necessarily told that God's going to do it another way. It could have just been Abimelech died. That mm. could have been the other. That's true. We're, yeah, and Abim for Abimelech, it was, if you don't return his wife, yeah, you will die. you're dead. But, but in verse 7, return his wife so that he will pray for you and you will live. So, yes, Abraham needs to pray for him or he's go not going to live. And also, yes, Abraham's going to pray for him. Uh, so, so Abimelech's healing is just as sure as Abraham's praying is sure. God ordains the ends and the means. He, the sure ends that God's ordained is you're going to be healed. The sure means that God has ordained is Abraham's going to pray for you. Now, God can't be wrong about that. Return his wife so that he will pray for you and you'll be healed. So what happens if he returns his wife and Abraham doesn't pray for him? God's a liar. God's wrong or a liar. Unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Abraham's going to do it. Now, did it feel to them, either one of them, like God twisted their arm behind their back and forced them to do it like robots? No, no couldn't have. Wouldn't have. Wasn't. So, How amazing is God? How incredible it is that God... That God works in this way. It's the same as if we were to say, on your way home tonight, you're going to stop and get a coffee. And God knows that, right? Let's say if you were going to do that, would God know it? Like, did he know it yesterday? Yeah. What if he told the angels about it yesterday? Are you free on your way home tonight to not stop and get a coffee? You're going to stop and get a coffee. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. As far as you're concerned, it might come down to whether the light was red or green and you turned left or went straight. But in, in God's eternal providential rule over history, if he knows, if he knows it, it's happening. God's foreknowledge is decisive. Uh, and so it's, it's incredible the way that, that that works. And that he has 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 factored into that work by the means of our prayer and our work and our proclamation and it's an it's an incredible it's an incredible thing in the story of abraham and abimelech he works through the sin of abraham to display his power to abimelech <laughs> like what what a thing all right so we conclude from this the prayer of a righteous person james 5 16 says has great power as it is working that is not a throwaway statement. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. This isn't a game that God's playing where it just makes us feel good. It's true. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. 
So we've seen God ordains prayer as the means through which he'll accomplish the other things he ordains. So why is it prayer, though? Psalm 50, verses 14 through 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So according to that, what, what, what might be one of the reasons God chooses to work through prayers? Brings him glory. Brings him glory for one. God, God is glorified. He is more glorified by acting in response to prayer than he would be otherwise. And so God does that. Paul, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope so that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. So Paul says, God has delivered us. God's going to deliver us. We need you to pray for us. You need to help us through prayer. Why, why is that? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the anticipated sequence of events? You also must help us in prayer. So, the, the Corinthian Christians pray, and what? What's Paul anticipate? God hears them. God acts. God delivers him in response to his prayer, and others will give thanks to God and glory to God. So what do you make of this statement? If we don't pray, God might not do things he would have done if we had prayed. True or false? I think we had to reverse the rest. I would say yes, but what would that So what are we saying? If we don't pray, God might not do things he would have done if we had prayed. True or false? Not in that we are limiting him, right? That's not what we're saying. But. Yeah, okay, let me relieve you of, of this concern. None of us think that God had his eternal, you know, the way that people casually and loosely talk about God. God wants to do this, but you just won't. Just won't let him. He's a gentleman. Okay, so, don't, yes. Uh, Christ is not knocking on heart's door, but there's no doorknob. So you must open from the inside. Um, so we're not saying God had his, in his, in his, there's the revealed will of God in scripture. And then there is God's will of uh, decree. What he actually does. We're not saying God's will of decree and then we're like, but you didn't pray, so God's sad now. Um, we're not saying that. So, understanding that, if we don't pray, God might not do things he would have done if we would have prayed. The answer is, of course that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. James 4, 2. You don't have why, because you do not ask. We, we sing it in the, the old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. 
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Um, that's not scripture, of course. Now that song's in your mind, and I, I say to you, you're welcome. So our prayers matter. Our prayers matter. All right, faith awakened and sustained through prayer. How far do we have to get? Oh, no. No, we don't. No, we're almost there. We're going to be great, Matt. How dare you? All right. Just as faith is awakened and sustained through the word of God, faith is also awakened and sustained in response to prayer. Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Luke 18, verses 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So here, here we see faith, faith awakened in the Thessalonians as they received the word of God uh, earlier in the lesson. Now we see Paul asking them to, to pray that others might have their faith awakened by the word of God. Uh, and so it is the word of God and prayer uh, that, are, that are the centerpieces um, in the salvation of sinners. Again, prayer not only awakens faith, it also sustains faith. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus talking to Peter. To Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And, and so, why, why would Jesus, the Son of God, need to pray for Peter's faith? Couldn't, couldn't he just sustain Peter's faith? Couldn't he say, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you? Don't worry. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to sustain your faith. And, and, you know, in John 6, Jesus says, I hold you in my hand. No one can snatch you out. So why would he say this? This is Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Or what, what should we take away, at least, from Jesus saying this? We can't quite unravel all the mysteries of the inner workings of the triune Godhead and the incarnation, but. It's for Peter's sake that he said it, for one, right? And, and, and we know it's a done deal, right? Satan's not going to get to sift you. I'm, I'm going to pray for you. On one hand, it's a massive encouragement to us, isn't it? Because um, we, we know that it's Christ who ever leads to intercede on our behalf. Um, so, I mean, that's it. He's, he's offering, he's offering perfect prayer that cannot be thwarted. Um, so just like Peter, uh, Satan will not be able to, to sift us either. Uh, the other thing we see is that God uses prayer as the means to accomplish his purposes. Um, to the extent that we see even the son of God with a vibrant prayer life. Uh, it's an astounding thing. Many beautiful prayers of Paul at the beginning of most of his letters is evidence that he sees prayer as the means by which faith is sustained. 
beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a, what a prayer. Paul giving thanks for the believers. Paul, Paul speaking to them of their common Savior. Christ is, is ours. God, God has called you in hope. His power has been directed towards you. Um, what, what, what an astounding, what an astounding prayer. So then we shouldn't end this section without emphasizing our need to regularly gather with other believers to worship God corporately in song and over the uh, preached word. Worship songs are simply prayers and praises set to music. Sitting under faithful, passionate exposition of God's word and preaching is vitally important for the spiritual life and health of the believer. Through preaching, we're convicted of sin, exhorted to holiness, comforted in despair, encouraged in faith. Fundamentally, preaching that honors God should lead people to experience the power and grace of God in that moment, such that they are fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. I would add corporate prayer, such a powerful means of, of grace. I know that you, you've got a prayer meeting in early mornings or something like that. Yep. Yeah, what, what a power. Well attended, well attended. Is it, is it as well attended as uh, our Wednesday night prayer meeting is? <laughs> Which is to say, not. I'll tell you, though, I'll tell you on the topic of the word and prayer. Wednesday night, I am always tired as the day goes on, and I think without, without fail every week, what I'd love to do is go home and put my feet up and not stay for the prayer meeting. And... Our prayer meeting is one hour long. We read, we, we, we simply read scripture for a half hour. No teaching, no anything. We just read scripture for a half hour and then corporate prayer for a half hour. And every single week at the end of it, I'm like, this is the best thing of the whole, like, this is the best. I can't believe that there was a point in the day where I didn't want to do this. Every week, I don't want to do it. Every week at the end, I'm like, well, this is the greatest thing in the whole world. To get together with God's people and read his word and pray. It, the, the, these means of grace, I tell you, are sustaining. Um, and it's sort of like Luther said about prayer. On the busy days, I pray three hours instead of two. In the busyness of life, I, that's where the sweetness of, of the ordinary means of grace come through. Um, so, let, close with these quotes and we're done. We made it. Jonathan Edwards, the main benefit that's obtained by preaching, the impression made upon the mind in the time of it, not the effect that arises afterwards by remembrance of what was delivered. I like that. That, 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 I think there, there's a, a ton of truth in that. And it's not that those of us who preach don't hope that everybody forgets what we said afterwards. <coughs> Although, let's be honest, that's part of why the music we sing is so important. 
because they don't remember much of what we preach and then they sing those songs all week long. Uh, so we better not waste them. But there's something supernatural that's happening in the preaching of God's word right there in that moment. In a, in a special way in that room in that moment. Uh, and so um, I resonate with that. It, it's, it's things, quotes like this that, that led me to most often if I go to a conference, I don't take notes anymore. I just, if it's preaching anyway. And I just want to, because I don't get to listen to a lot of preaching in person anymore. And I just want to, just want to be in it. <laughs> I, I love it. But uh, it's true. It's a supernatural thing. God working by his spirit through his word. Uh, okay, so we did it. We'll be ready for lesson seven on Saturday. And we will have a lot, have a lot of, uh, fun. of fun. We'll have a lot of fun. That's right. Do you, you want to pray? You want me to pray? All right. Father, thank you for this evening together. What a privilege it is to come together uh, to study you, to study your word in this, in this different setting, in this different way. And uh, I thank you, Lord, for, for everybody that's here tonight, for their heart for you, for their desire uh, to grow in godliness and faithfulness. I thank you for the call on each one of their lives, uh, Lord, for that, that, that you intend to uh, to use them, the gifts that you've given them, uh, and the call that you've placed on them for your glory. I thank you, Lord, for the good work you're doing in this church that is, that Lord is producing uh, men and women who hunger and thirst for righteousness and a after you, and who, who are gifted and called uh, into your service. I thank you for that, Lord, and the good fruit uh, that's born here. I do pray, Lord, for your blessing. I pray for this week as as everyone is, is committed time away from family and time on top of busy schedules, that you'd give margin in the schedule uh, tomorrow and, and uh, for the weekend as, as Saturday will be a long day together, that families would be understanding and that this would be a, um, an occasion for joy. And Lord, that you would use this for, uh, to accomplish much in each one of our lives for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ alone, what is our